welcome to the Talk Narrow to Me podcast. In this episode, Professor Carrick discusses the vestigial nucleus and trunk position. Professor Carrick describes the dominance of trunk position over head position and vestibular processing of the cerebellum. We hope you enjoy the show. We're going to be talking about the um, influences of trunk position on the vestibular responses of the fastidium of the cerebellum. This is an exciting area of clinical applications and I'm very, very happy that you asked me to talk about it. We know that trunk position influences the vestibular responses of the vestigial nucleus neurons in alert monkeys and we think that it probably happens in humankind as well. We probably can take it to the bank, but of course the types of experiments you really can't do. We know that vestibulospinal responses or these reflexes are just integral in all of the things that humankind does. It's very important for us to be able to stabilize our bodies when we're moving as well as when we're standing still. So body stabilization for postural control as well as locomotion is very, very central to the integration of reflexes in the vestibulospinal system. So we need to realize that the type of stabilization and the complexities of locomotion are such that you really need to have a great variety of projections of the distribution of signaling from the vestibular area to spinal motor neurons. We need to be able to orientate our body uh, relative to the head and for different trunk positions we're going to realize that different vestibular stimuli must activate different sets of muscles to ensure a body stabilization. So it's pretty obvious that if you're leaning forward, you're going to have to fire different muscles to stabilize you than if you're leaning back. And uh, that's pretty well the simplest conceptual way of looking at it, but the real way it works is just not so simple. I mean, conceptually it's simple, but realistically it's not simple. So let's look at the things that can give us a a whole big... uh, clinical types of orientation. Remember that the the body must be oriented relative to your head. You need to be able to maintain a visual vertigo and it's pretty pretty reasonable that the same set of vestibular stimuli, that is to say the same set of vestibular activation because of your head position is going to have to activate different muscles if you're in different trunk positions. <clears throat> so here's the neat thing. The head can be in the same position whether you're bending forward or back, but the types of muscles it's going to activate are going to be different. How does this work out? Well, the cerebellar vermis is unique uh, in regards to this type of task. And when we look at the cerebellar vermis and the underlying vestigial nucleus, we're going to know that we're going to have to use this mechanism of comparison of what's happening in the trunk and what's happening in the head or in the vestibular labyrinthine uh, system. So vestibular neurons that are in the rostral vestigial nucleus of uh, monkeys that are alert uh, have been recorded during vestibular stimulation, the typical sinusoidal vestibular, uh, vestibular uh, activation in both roll and pitch planes, that is to say in uh, flexion uh, and extension as well as lateral bending and at different trunk rehead positions uh, and the individual sensitivity and phase values that is measured in, in all of these individual planes uh, are such that the response properties can be uh, vectored, if you would, and calculated. And in most neurons, 
you're going to find that the response vector orientation, that is to say, you think you're going to the right, you have to respond by going to the left. So most neurons, that response vector orientation is going to rotate systematically with respect to the head, <coughs> excuse me, when the trunk rehead position was altered so that they tend to maintain their orientation with respect to the trunk. Now, when we look at sensitivity in phase, at the response vector orientation, these aren't really affected. So this gives you a whole load of information that shows that the vestigial neurons are probably going to encode the vestibular information. And how are they going to do this? They have to do it by a coordinate system that is really closer to a trunk-centered system than to a head-centered reference frame. And for those of you that deal with spinal mechanics, this is absolutely very, very exciting that when we look at this head, hey, the head can be in the same position, but the trunk might be the guiding uh, factor. And this indicates a very important role of this nucleus in motor programs that are related to posture and gait control. So we know that the vestibular system is very, very important in the control of the spinal uh, motor system, eye movements, as well as uh, human uh, perception. We know that the signaling of the, the, the labyrinthine system, the otolithic uh, system, the inner ear system that feeds, feeds into the brainstem and involves vestibulospinal mechanisms, they have to be fused with a number of body-related signals to generate appropriate reflectory motor responses uh, during motion and for postural control. And this is probably most obvious for the interactions that occur between your head and your trunk. For instance, if you have any perturbation of the environment that leads to a vestibular activation or a vestibular stimulation, such as a spin or a changes in angular velocity, any perturbating force at all that stimulates the vestibular system with the head pointing forward is going to induce a vestibulospinal response in specific sets of trunk, trunk and uh, limb muscles that are going to activate the muscles to prevent the body from falling. Just plain and simple. Now, if you turn the head 90 degrees to the side, then an identical vestibular stimulus is going to have to activate quite a different set of muscles to ensure body st stabilization. So we know that the vestibulospinal reflex mechanisms need to take into account the positions relative to each other of the trunk and the head. And this is very important for us clinically so that we can understand how this reflex activity is actually uh, distributed to the, uh, to the trunk as well as to the, uh, to the neck muscles as, and, and of course to the effector organs themselves of the, of the vestibulospinal reflex arc. So at the end of the clinical day, we know that this stuff has to occur. That is to say, if your head's in one position, but your body is in a different position, different muscles are going to have to react through the vestibulospinal into relationships to keep you from falling down. So we know how it works, but experimentally, how do you uh, test it? Well, we know experimentally that there is a redistribution of vestibulospinal reflex activity in response to the changes of head on trunk position. And some classic types of work uh, has been used using a transmastoidal galvanic vestibular stimulation. And uh, this is the, the classic work of Franson at the beginning of the 2000s, as well as Halavaca 
Uh's work in eight in uh, eighteen ninety five and nineteen eighty five. I was thinking of Palmer there for a second, but they weren't doing that. Well, these these people showed that the plane of an induced reflectory body sway rotated uh, systematically to remain approximately aligned with the interaural line. Uh, that is to say, the line that would be between your ears when the head was turned from the straight ahead position to the to the side. So that's that's what you'd expect. That is to say, you're going to look at body sway. It's going to be related into the line between your ears. We also have found uh, from different work from uh, Kennedy and Inglis in 2002 and from Takita uh, and that group in uh, the early 90s that systemic changes in the vestibularly evoked electromyographic responses in the leg so that they measured from leg muscles and when you evoke the vestibular activity uh, leg muscle activity changes when you look at the positional relationships between the head and the trunk so it's pretty obvious that when you look at most of the books that are around in your library that not so very much is seen on them. A lot of this information has been gathered over the last 20 years, but more specifically over the last decade or so. So what is the neuronal basis of this fundamental mechanism? Not too many people know a whole load about it, but we know that there's a bucket of evidence that the neck-related information is processed in the vestibular nuclei. You'd expect this to be true, that what happens in your neck is also seen in the vestibular nuclei, and this is uh, demonstrated by single-unit recordings uh, performed in, uh, in, in immobilized or decerebrate cats. And this is the work uh, that you look at from Wilson and that group in 1990, not Quags Wilson, but a different Wilson, as well as uh, Anastolopoulos, in 1982, so it's some classic types of research, and you can search those those things. Very very nice uh, types of uh, effects. So uh, when you look at the decerebrated cats, some of that information is compared to more recent work in the alert monkeys, such as uh, shown by uh, McRae and Gadowski in uh, in their work in the early 2000s. So when we look at um, species-related differences. We, you know, we say, hey, you know, does it work to humans or not? We find that there's a pretty well good relationship between all mammalian uh, species, especially among primates, specific to the presence or absence of proprioceptive information in the neck. And we know that uh, these inputs from neck proprioceptors, these are the mechanoreceptors in, in joint uh, joint receptors in the in the, uh, in, the, in, the uh, in the joints of the neck as well as the muscle spindles, that these proprioceptive inputs are going to project to specific subgroups of the vestibular nuclei neurons. Now, the reticulospinal neurons in the medullary reticular formation are well known to most of you, and these reticulospinal neurons have been shown to carry converging vestibular and neck information. <coughs> However. When we look at the investigational studies that look at dynamic vestibular neck inter interaction, uh, these, these interactions are usually in the same plane, but they may not be associated with differences in position of the trunk or other types of things. So when we look at the cerebellum, we know that that is an area that receives just a bucket 
of vestibular input. And most of you have memorized the individual pathways that come in. You know that the anterior vermis is considered to be part of the spinal uh, cerebellum. We know that if you have lesions in the anterior vermis, you can have disorders of gait and postural control. We've known that for a whole lot of time, and especially from Ido's great work in the uh, in the 80s. <coughs> Excuse me. A high percentage of um, Purkinje cells also respond to natural vestibular stimulation, and these inhibit output types of neurons. So that when we look at Purkinje activation, we realize that semicircular canal and otolithic input is going to have a Purkinje uh, consequence. A very, very good uh, reference for you for that is back from 1997 with Pompiano uh, and and that team. Some really great stuff. And it seems that a lot of these researchers, you see them at different conferences. They're, they're the guys that get into an area. They're the ones that publish on it. They like it and they keep on doing it. So it's pretty easy to become familiar uh, with their uh, with their work. And then you got the pitch and roll people. And pitch and roll is pretty cool because you can take a person or an animal and you can put them in a type of machine and rock and roll them a little bit. And we're going to be doing some of this up at the FR Carrick Institute. We've got a very expensive $250,000 gyroscope that was given to me uh, to utilize, not to keep and take home, but to utilize. Uh, and the utilization is very excited on the kids with cerebral palsy and different learning um, devices. So we're going to be doing all sorts of pitch and roll types of stimulation to see what happens in cognitively and, of course, with motor function in these kids. Well, there's um, a team headed by Manzoni around oh the end of the 90s, early 2000s, what they did is they took these cerebrate cats, just sort of lopped everything off above the mesencephalon, and, and that way they took away the, the cortical consequences. And what they did is they uh, looked at those cats, and then they put them in positions of pitch and roll, <clears throat> such as a wobble type of stimulus, but they did it with different trunk head positions, or you have one where the head is held in a labyrinthine thing, but you, you move the trunk upwards or downwards or to the side. And then these individual conditions are directly related to changes in the proprioceptive type of feedback rather than the labyrinthine types of effect. And what they found when they recorded from the anterior cerebellar vermis was that for most of the Purkinje cells, the vestibular response characteristics change with the different trunk positions. And this is really crazy, crazy good, and really, I think, very exciting. It's super, super exciting for those of us that work with spinal mechanics and, and things, and it's super, super exciting for those that don't because they're really going to have to consult with you to really understand what happens in, in gait and balance and a variety of, of different things. Now, the Purkinje cells of the vermis are going to project to the vestibular nuclei and to, the and to the vestigial nucleus. Now, we've known this man for like forever, from the early 70s, and they also are going to project to the most medial deep cerebellar nucleus. So when you look at monkeys, and this is where most of the, the higher types of uh, information has been done on cerebellar vestibular system, but when you look at a monkey that is alert and behaving well, the neurons in the vestigial nucleus respond to natural vestibular stimulation. It just does this all the time. And many, many people have uh, looked at this uh, type of information. Gardner 
and uh, Fuchs, for instance, in the early 70s, more recently, Seibold and these people. It's really easy to study. So when we look at the vestigial nucleus, these are the, the neurons that respond to normal vestibular stimulation, just moving your head around. Uh, these individual uh, vestigial nucleus are located more rostrally in the vestigial nucleus. So when they're rostral in the vestibular nucleus, they're not related to individual eye movement. So they, they've they been really talked about as vestibular-only neurons, okay? So they're not going to be related to eye movements. They're just vestibular neurons in the rostral vestigial nucleus. So let's look at it. Sidebolt these people, they're looking in the rostral one. They find out that there's no eye movements coming in. What are you going to do next? Well, let's take a little look down at the caudal uh, vestigial nucleus. And it's the caudal vestigial nucleus that is modulated during individual eye movements, specifically saccades and smooth pursuit. And uh, Fuchs uh, and Robinson did these studies probably about nine years ago in 2001. So uh, what do we call the caudal uh, vestigial nucleus? We call it the vestigilo-oculomotor region, the FOR, the vestigial oculomotor region. So we got vestibular-only neurons that are up high, 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 high function, lower. We've got eyes, and uh, we have the vestigium together. So really a neat type of orientation. Clinically, that's important for you because not you're not going to be going in and putting electrodes and, and stimulating individual areas of, a, of someone's um, cerebellum, but you can do that. For instance, if you want to stimulate the rostral vestigial nucleus, you're going to do vestibular types of information without giving them visual activities. If you want to do the caudal one, you may give them some head movement and eye movement. I'm going to show you why this is important because in certain lesions, for instance, in the rostral area, eye types of activities are not going to do anything for the individual person or maybe not as much as a plain vestibular activity, whereas the, the reverse can be, uh, can be true. Now, Seibold, uh, and Seibold, S-I-E-B-O-L-D, whole load of stuff coming out in the mid-90s. And that group uh, with Seibold did some uh, vestibular-only studies, of course, in the rostral vestigial nucleus, and what they did is they used a vertical plane activation to stimulate the vestibular system, and they found that the responses were often cosine-tuned. That is to say, they were, they, they were tuned uh, with respect to the orientation of the individual stimulus. And, and what they found was that with cosine-tuning, the sensitivity of that vestibular response is really a function of the cosine of the angle between the orientation where the response is maximal, in other words, the response vector orientation. And this little bit of geometry is really, really cool because the response phase is constant with the exception that there is a phase reversal at the orientations that are 90 degrees uh, to the response uh, vector orientation so that they're orthogonal to this area. And most of you understand the orthogonal uh, system very, very well. So when uh, you look at vestibular stimulation in in a vertical plane, for instance, at different frequencies, what happens is, at least in the monkey, is that a whole load, the majority, if you would, of vestigial neurons were really actually capable to generate more 
complex response patterns than they ordinarily would would do, which would mean to say is that they're going to have variable degrees of modulation at the minimum orientation and gradual changes of the individual response phase with stimulus orientation. So these are patterns that are also encountered at the uh, vestibular nuclei and they require input signals that are different both in their phase behavior, both in their spatial properties. And so uh, individuals talk of, of these types of vestibular uh, integration as spatiotemporal convergence. Well, what else are you going to talk about? Now, let me tell you, the person that really coined this term of spatiotemporal convergence is uh, a researcher by the name of Angelaki. Angelaki, uh, and this is in the early 90s. So some really exciting aspects. We look at spatiotemporal convergence. These spatiotemporal convergence responses can come up about due to convergence of signals from oh, otolithic afferents, from semicircular canals. All of them can, can converge together, and, and these can be common in vestigial nucleus neurons. So when you look at the quantitative analysis of the spatiotemporal convergence responses in the fastigium, we find that the vast majority of the complex response patterns can be accurately described as really the, the simple linear sum of cosine-tuned input signals. And uh, this is referred to as linear uh, spatiotemporal convergence. So it's pretty, pretty exciting when we look at the variety of things that uh, can be done. And, and if you look at the research uh, activities, you get some exciting understanding. Now, in order to do research on these, you have to open the animal up. So there's a surgical uh, intervention, and the surgery has got to be just, uh, just really, really appropriate. They use stereotactic uh, types, of, uh, types of effects. And, of course, you've got to put electrodes in and bolts into the skull and then record the, uh, the activity. So they're expensive experiments, but they're good. They tell us a whole lot of information that we can, uh, that we can look about. The important thing is that all, in all of these experiments uh, with monkeys, you look at rotation sinusoidally around an Earth horizontal axis at different frequencies. And the frequencies are between 0 0.1 and 1 hertz. And then... We have different velocities that go from 9.5 to 75.4 degrees per second. So all of these individual activities, and it's such that when you're moving the animal, you can test individual neurons at different orthogonal <coughs> stimulus orientations. So what's it doing when you pitch the animal? What's it doing when you roll the animal? Or in your mind, what happens to a patient who's got an orientation of an anterior center of pressure or a posterior center of pressure, and we look at these neuronal responses at all intermediate uh, stimulus types of uh, information. So when you look at this type of effect, you've got to put the goodies together and then start to understand what's going to happen when you record from the individual vestibular uh, neurons and then look at the influence, if you would, between the trunk versus a head position. This is so important uh, for us to understand that the vestibular system is important, but perhaps it might be secondary to some truncal types of uh, types of activities. So what are some of the things that we can uh, look at? When we look at the response vector orientation, 
the response vector or orientation is gotta is probably different for different trunk positions. That would make sense. And you ha need to look at different trunk positions at different speeds and uh, see if there's any any differences. And, and in fact, there is. So during stimulation in roll, you can have a different modulation of uh, one uh, neuron uh, that may not be excited uh, unless it's in a pitch plane. <clears throat> so individual neurons seem to have higher sensitivity during different uh, planar activity. For instance, you may have a high sensitivity in pitch but low during during roll. And this would indicate that you would have a best neuronal response in a certain type of uh, position. And that type of position is oftentimes related uh, to the, the position of the individual trunk. For instance, if you turn the trunk to the left by the 45 degrees and you stimulate any animal roll, the neurons in the vestigial nucleus are almost unmodulated and they have they have very modular modulation during pitch. Well, when you look at the trunk rotated right, right, there's very good modulation roll, but no modulation during pitch stimulation. This is very very exciting exciting So depending upon whether whether the trunk is simply rotated to the right or the left, you are going to either increase the output from a pitch parameter or a roll parameter, but not both of them. So this is very, very exciting in showing that there's changing, and because the the individual response vector orientation, which means to say the animal perceives that it is moving in a certain type of direction, and that response, of course, is expressed in relationship to the animal's head, and of course to our heads when we're moving. So because the response vector orientation is expressed exactly in relationship to where our head is, it doesn't remain stable with respect to the head when the trunk uh, versus the head position is passively altered. So that the response vector orientation, that is to say regarding the head, to remain uh, as it is, remains approximately aligned with a specific orientation of the trunk. And we find that the different ratios of the orientation or angulation of the trunk uh, versus the head is really going to make the, uh, the difference. And this, I think, becomes very, very exciting uh, for us. It, it would tell us that, in fact, the vestibular response of neurons in the vestigium can be considered as organized in a trunk-centered rather than a head-centered reference frame. And this has profound applications in vestibular uh, therapies. It has profound applications in a whole variety of different types of, uh, types of effects. We also realize that the orientation of the head to the trunk is such that there may be differences in the relationship of the vestigium or in the uh, cerebellum, depending upon the frequencies of the movement. And you know this from your patients. Sometimes they can move slower. It's not a problem. They move faster. They have a little bit uh, more of a uh, of a problem. So different activities can uh, can be done. <clears throat> the reality is that we know we have converging spatially and temporally diverse input signals that are coming into the cerebellum. And when we look at the spatiotemporal convergence properties of individual neurons, we're going to have 
uh, different abilities to tune the ratio of the relative vector that's going to allow a quantitative assessment of that spatio-temporal uh, convergence. And this gives us some real exciting activity where you may have a different firing of a different muscle because the person perceives that he or she is in a certain position. So what happens when there's an aberrancy in tonus from one side of the body to the other? Well, it's pretty obvious that on your spinal segments, if you've got increased tone from one side versus the other, you may be bending to one side, but the animal or the person's cerebellum and fastigium perceives that they have more information from another side and therefore the consequences of motor responses may be different and people may hurt their knees inappropriately they may not plant their foot they may not walk uh correctly which is which is not uh anything that you'd, you'd find surprising but the spatial properties of vestibular func uh, vestigial nucleuses are, are really modified by changes in this trunk versus head position. So when you alter the position of the trunk and keep the head straight, then the relative vector of uh, orientation of neurons is going to shift. And uh, this is very, very uh, important types of things that would give us a lot of information to say, hey, uh, maybe a little bit of trunk displacement is going to cause a whole load of vestibular symptoms in one person or not another person, depending upon the integrity of that proprioceptive barrage. Man, it's very, very uh, exciting because we know that the convergence of proprioceptive information and information from the vestibular system into the vestigial nucleus is uh, going to be uh, related to different effector muscles in the trunk depending upon where you perceive that you're going going to be. And I think that this is uh, pretty darn uh, pretty darn neat when you look at it. So we're looking at this uh, almost in a ubiquitous uh, presence of the spatiotemporal convergence neurons in the vestigium. And we've got a spatial diversity of these vestibular input signals to the vestigial uh, neurons that really, I think, is reflected in those spatiotemporal convergence responses. And this is really a basis of our humanism because we have such different orientation. Maybe a round shoulder person, you may have a kyphosis, you may have different tone types of effects. My gosh, uh, different centers of pressures and whole loads are just wonderful things that can cause uh, different activities. For instance, if you look at trunk position and you look at tonic activity of signaling <clears throat> obviously you may not have the same information coming from the left side of your trunk than the right side of your trunk and then you're not going to have that same sort of orthogonal or cosine uh, tuned effects in the in the fastigium so we're looking at something like a gain modulated input signal or these interacting spatially diverse signals that are going to describe a whole load of different types of things. We know, for instance, that we have an eye position dependence of visual responses that are going to be able to help us localize in the parietal cortex. We also know that we need to look at this retinotopic head-centered coordinate activity that the head's going to keep those eyes just perfectly straight. And then we look at this head uh, centered toward the trunk-centered coordinates for the vestibulospinal system. And 
it really does make sense that since the head is oriented by neck mechanics to keep you fovealized, to, to allow you to see, that it's that trunk activity which becomes the brain. Well, my gosh, can you imagine the, the spine being the, the command system of the, of the whole darn thing? That's just, it's absolutely mind-boggling for me from a clinical type of effect. So we would say that the brain itself can employ similar computational principles for distinct sensory modalities in the cerebellum, uh, just as it does in the parietal lobe when it looks at information of where your hands are, where the environment environment is. So we've got this complex, ubiquitous uh, spatio-temporal convergence and the functional uh, references I think we see with uh, clinical activity when we do uh, stimulations of trunk and a variety of other things. So just an exciting, 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 exciting world to be in. Okay, well, um, I really enjoy this concept of the trunk being the brain, and, and there's so much out there. You can read, read, read about it, and then hopefully I did a, a nice sort of uh, an overview for you, and, and uh, we'll do some more of this, and thank you for asking me to speak about it. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on careginstitute.com.